the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. Well, I must confess that I'm deeply concerned about the body of Christ, especially for us westernized evangelicals, and particularly for us American Christians. You see, friends, in our COVID and post-COVID world, I wonder if the Apostle John's words to the seven churches in Revelation are equally fitting for us evangelicals. Seven times this exact verse repeats, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This 2023 series I'm starting today is called Our Faith. What will others see in 2023? Perhaps you've already made one or more New Year's resolutions. Perhaps you've even realized it's not likely you'll fulfill them through the end of the year. Well, friends, part one is called, How Do God and Jesus See Others? After all, if we're going to be imitators of God, as Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 5.1, and Peter says Jesus left us an example that we should follow in his steps in 1 Peter 2.21, it would certainly seem prudent to know just how God and Jesus see others so we can mimic them. By the way, mimic is precisely the meaning behind Paul's word imitate. Maybe a fitting or challenging New Year's resolution might be, this year I resolve to mimic Jesus better than I did last year. Or maybe even this year I resolve to let my light shine brighter than it did last year. After all, friends, Jesus' own words in his Beatitude sermon in Matthew five fifteen and 16 were, People don't light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Friends, shouldn't our goal be to let our behaviors and our actions cause others to see God, to see Jesus in us? Well, today I've chosen one Old Testament example and one New Testament example to help us see just how God and Jesus see others. For our Old Testament example, I've chosen the book of Esther with its four main characters, King Xerxes, 
Esther, who became his queen, Mordecai, Esther's uncle, and Haman, the evil court official serving the king. Friends, this story is riveting. Read the book of Esther in one sitting. You won't put it down. And keep an eye out for the four people I mentioned and their part in the drama. Today I'll only have time to highlight some key verses, one being Mordecai's advice to Esther in chapter 414. Who knows but that you, Esther, have come to your royal position for such a time as this. I love that brief phrase, for such a time as this. Personally, I think it's timeless. Personally, I think we all need a fresh dose of this phrase, remembering that God has placed each of us in a certain time and in a certain place to accomplish a certain purpose we each have in his redemptive plan. Another being just a little more than halfway through, Esther, in chapter 6, an incredible segue occurs. King Xerxes, Persia's emperor, calls it a day and goes to bed. Never did a man have such means to help him fall asleep. After all, he has servants to fan away the heat, musicians to strum away the boredom, a harem for bed companions, endless wine to drink himself into oblivion. So why does he toss and turn on his pillow? Maybe a hard day at the office? A tad extra spice in the dinner soup? An ingrown toenail? Yet, according to Esther 6.1, that night, the king could not sleep. Instead of calling his entertainers, he decides to be read to with the very chronicles of his reign. Should make anyone nod off. It was the insomniac's guide to good reading. As the reader drones on, an obscure statement sets Xerxes' mind thinking in a different direction, and it prepares him for an empire-altering request his wife and queen, Esther, will make to him the next day. It tips his mental scales so that he'll grant Esther's request, and this granting will end up sparing the whole Jewish population from annihilation, from extinction, a special people group will be spared. Friends, centuries later, out of this people group will come a young boy who will grow up and die for the sins of the world, all because King Xerxes couldn't sleep that night. Now, friends, listen to a modern-day creative retelling of the theme of Esther, narrated by Johnny Erickson Tata in her book, When God Weeps. Her goal, I believe, is to help us see just how God sees others, plus how God orchestrates quote-unquote natural events to occur at specific times and in specific places to further his mission. In other words, so we can recognize God-planned coincidences. I've heard these referred to as God-incidences. Pretty cool, huh? Johnny herself said, Our life is no exception to God's delight in arranging coincidences. She then relates this story to get us thinking. Consider your big 4th of July picnic. You live near Philadelphia, so it's only right to eat a burger in Ben Franklin's honor. After all, the sun is warm, the grill is working, the grass is mowed for softball, and everyone's bringing a jello salad. But unknown to you, God wants it to rain. For your friends to go home, for your brother-in-law, Ed, to help you carry the grill into the garage, where you two will lean against the car, listening to the downpour. 
because there you'll get into a long conversation leading to spiritual things, eventually leading to your brother-in-law's conversion. Ed's been thinking about God lately, but he's a very private man, hesitant to broach personal subjects, and needs an ideal time and setting. So how does God pull this off? Miracle rain out of nowhere? Something that baffles AccuWeather and brings the X-File team to investigate? No, while it's still warm in your backyard five miles above, the air is starting to cool. A miracle? No, it's a polar jet stream bringing colder air from the northwest. Dry and heavy, this air will drop, shoving the steamy air in your backyard upward. Rising, it'll cool, and its water vapor becomes clouds. And about three miles up, those clouds make ice crystals. Watch out! Ice crystals get bloated from eating up nearby water molecules, too fat to keep floating. So they start falling as snow. But it's summer, so when they land in your infield, it's rain. Goodbye, Smiths. So long, Wilsons. It was fun while it lasted. Sure, Ed, I could use some help carrying the grill into the garage. Yet, not long ago, the jet stream was 200 miles north. What shot it your way this weekend? Something that happened three days ago. A jet stream disturbance over the Canadian Rockies. One just right to send this forward to Philadelphia. And to get the disturbance just right, a precise path of that jet stream over the mountain. And to achieve that precise path, a complicated series of atmospheric twists from the Earth's rotation and the proper Pacific Ocean water temperature a day earlier. But the temperature was being affected back in April, when the right amount of cloud cover was letting in the right amount of sunlight. 6,000 miles away and four years earlier, a volcano spewed ashes into the atmosphere that affected last April's cloud cover. Friends, God's been thinking about your brother-in-law for some time. Of course, surefire rain doesn't guarantee Ed will show up at the picnic. After all, he's been looking forward to 18 holes today. But his golfing buddy's wife caught an ad this morning about the red, white, and blue sale at Harry's Lawn and Garden and swore her husband's seen his last hot meal if he doesn't get over there and finally buy that lovely comfo lawn furniture that promises easy assembly in minutes. So today God planted thoughts in a wife's mind and allowed advertisers to stretch the truth about assembly required by about, uh, oh, say, five and a half hours, plus lining up nature in advance. And God is doing the same thing with people all over the country, and I'll add the world, who need some rain or sunshine to further his mission in their lives. Totally natural, mind-bogglingly complicated. Now, friends, I'll suggest God's action flows from two basic desires in his heart. First, he desires that none should perish. Second Peter 3, 9, The Lord is patient toward us, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And second, he desires to use us to fulfill his first desire. In Acts 1, 8, during a conversation with his disciples, Jesus said, You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. You see, friends, Jesus left us a model, a template 
a pattern, so to speak, a way to see our world in manageable portions, our world being the world where we each live, where we go through our daily lives and routines. So I propose that we each have our own Jerusalem, our own Judea, our own Samaria, and our own remotest part of the earth. And why I've called this series Our Faith, What Will Others See in 2023? And we'll include a biblical and practical look at how we Christians can naturally intersect the lives of others, being more conscientious of the natural settings or groupings that God's placed us in regarding their lives. Imagine a series of circles with the same center, moving outward, totaling seven. Visualize a rock dropped into a still lake and the rippling effect we'd see. We could even picture a dartboard or a bullseye target that archers use. Now take the imaginary dot or smallest center circle. That's now you. The first circle out represents your immediate family. The second circle represents your relatives or extended family. The third circle out becomes your close friends. The fourth circle is now your neighbors, co-workers, or business contacts. The fifth circle is now your acquaintances. And the sixth circle is person X. In other words, that stranger you encounter unexpectedly through an unplanned experience. Let's take the biblical template in Acts 1-8 and lay it over these six groupings. Here's what we get. Our Jerusalem is our immediate family and relatives. Our Judea becomes our friends, neighbors, and work or business contacts. Our Samaria becomes our acquaintances. And finally, our remotest part of the earth becomes strangers. Dr. Warren Wearsby made an incredible statement I'd like to use to help us see the world and people around us in order to reach out to them. He said, Ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Friends, notice the four spokes to this ministry wheel. First, divine resources. Second, meet human needs. Third, through loving channels. And fourth, to the glory of God. Now, doesn't this describe Esther and Mordecai, the loving channels God used to meet a specific human need, save a whole people group, and glorify himself? Friends, keep this fourfold statement fresh in your mind as we move to our New Testament example, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4. Once again, ministry takes place when divine resources meet human needs through loving channels to the glory of God. Well, let's pause here for a moment. If you tuned in late, you're listening to A Word from the Word with me, your host, Pastor Tom. I want to let you know how valuable you are as listeners to A Word from the Word, which is 100% listener-supported. Your financial partnership helps keep this program on the air, which disciples many Christians without a church home, plus those of you who may have been wounded by the institutional church. Join forces with me and A Word from the Word by emailing me for support details at a word from the word at minister.com. And friends, we'll repeat this information at the end of today's broadcast. Well, John 4 tells us Jesus leaves Judea and goes back to Galilee. So we'll pick up at verse 4. 
Now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water. Jesus said to her, "'Will you give me a drink?' His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This may also indicate Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you'd have asked him, and he would have given you living water. "'Sir,' she said, "'you have nothing to draw with at the well is deep. "'Where can you get this living water? "'Are you greater than our father Jacob, "'who gave us the well and drank from it himself, "'as did his sons and livestock?' "'Jesus answered, "'Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, "'but whoever drinks the water I give them "'will become in them a spring of water "'welling up to eternal life.' The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Sir, she said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I am the one speaking to you. Just then Jesus' disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you reap where you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you've reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. 
Now, friends, Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman reveals a lot about how he sees people and then approaches them. Notice Jesus provides a template for us. Let's observe some of his tactics. First, he makes himself available. He went to where the woman was. He didn't invite her to attend his synagogue. Second, he's candid yet tactful. Here Jesus shows respect to others. Third, he sees beyond others' immediate needs. Jesus, in seeing beyond others' immediate needs, perceives their true need. So the immediate need becomes a stepping stone to draw them into seeing their true need. Recall today's title, How Do God and Jesus See Others? This is a common pattern for Jesus. He meets people's immediate physical need, food, healing, etc., then draws them to recognize and see their true spiritual need. When we see others with Jesus' eyes, we help them see their deeper spiritual need. Fourth, he asks questions to draw out answers. Notice, friends, Jesus doesn't just make truth declarations. The first question he asks the Samaritan woman early on in verse 7 was, Will you give me a drink? Fifth, he shows patience. Jesus doesn't cut to the quick until verse 25. There's 24 verses of conversation. Yes, the dialogue is candid and poignant, but also respectful and keeps her engaged. Sixth and lastly, he appeals to faith. Jesus recognizes stepping stones to belief. He doesn't expect everyone to have the whole enchilada right away. Friends, let's observe more carefully the Samaritan woman's progression of faith while talking with Jesus and what occurred so she'd see Jesus as Messiah, not only of the Jews but of the Samaritans, and then the whole world. First, verse 9, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Feel the sharp division and animosity she recognizes between them. John clues us in. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Second verse 11, she calls Jesus Sir. This is the Greek word for Lord, but it doubles as a term of respect, often meaning Sir, depending on the context. Third verse 19, she declares to Jesus, You must be a prophet. After all, he just told her all her sins without any prior knowledge. And fourth verse 29, she wonders, Can this be the Messiah? Friends, the inference here is that as Messiah, Jesus is Savior. Notice how this encounter ends. In verse 42, the townspeople respond to the Samaritan woman with, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. You see, friends, we now know why Jesus had to go through Samaria when verse 4 introduced his journey. Jesus had to correct his disciples' spiritual myopia. All they could see was the racial hatred that fomented for centuries. If they were going to turn the world upside down, they would have to see Samaritans differently. They would have to see with Jesus' eyes. They would have to see people as Jesus saw them, ripe for the gospel and ripe for salvation, lost people that God loved. Verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 35 clues us in. Jesus said to his disciples, open your eyes and look at the fields. They're ripe for harvest. Now, friends, our translations that say ripe lose a vital cultural connection here. The Greek word is white. 
white for harvest. The vital cultural context informs us that people in that hot climate often wore white turbans and white robe-type clothes. Jesus looked with the eyes of a Savior and saw the spiritual harvest running out to him and his disciples. If Jesus' disciples were going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth, they'd have to become quick studies of their rabbi and see his care for the lost, regardless of race. And after Jesus sees people, his sight becomes his stepping stone to doing. Friends, remember the WWJD movement? What would Jesus do? Well, I contend we can't answer that question properly unless we become very familiar with what Jesus actually did do in the context of his own culture in the Gospels and only then determine what steps he did take when he encountered people in his daily routines. John 4 is one terrific chapter for studying Jesus' ways with people he encountered, how he conversed with them, led them to see just who he was and what his mission was. In the Gospels, we get to see Jesus in action. We get to see how he sees and how we should imitate him. Friends, if we really want others to see our faith in 2023, we must become students of people. We must go to them and learn what makes people tick before we pounce on them with the gospel. Jesus was the quintessential example of an expert observer. We too must be willing to engage people and observe them in their own settings and then ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate us to what earthly bridge we can build to share the gospel. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program, which will close with an email where you may write me. Here you may also inquire how to financially keep this program on the air. I so appreciate you who faithfully support a word from the word. I also love coming alongside those without a church home or those who've been wounded by the institutional church. Podcasts are found at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. They're also available on Spotify and Apple. And thanks to my friends at christianbody.net, a word from the word is broadcast over 70 countries. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it and i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.